Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm Maya Nowens. In today's episode, we'll be turning our attention to Japan. After eight years, Japan elected a new prime minister, Suga Yoshihide, on 14 September 2020, with 70% of the Liberal Democratic Party or LDP vote. Since then, Suga's government continues to face a challenging internal and external environment. The LDP suffered a blow in by elections in the end of April 2021. And faces public discontent with the government's handling of COVID and other domestic political scandals. And in just three months' time, the 2020 Olympics and Paralympic Games are due to be held in Tokyo amid a targeted state of emergency. Internationally, Prime Minister Suga was quick to establish a strong start to the US Japan relationship under Biden, looking to the US as well as to the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, or QUAD, for coordination on common security, economic, and humanitarian challenges. So, joining me today are two of my colleagues from the WIWS Japan Chair Program based in London to discuss these issues further. Robert Ward is the Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy and the WIWS Japan Chair. Yuko Koshino is the Research Fellow for Japanese Security and Defense Policy, and her research focuses on Japan's foreign relations, security and defense policy, and economic statecraft. So, welcome back to the podcast, Yuka and Robert. Thank you very much for having us again. Thank you, Mayor. Thanks for having us. So, Robert, let's start with you. As mentioned, Prime Minister Suga faces quite a challenging start to his administration. Can you unpack the domestic political environment that's facing the Prime Minister of us a little bit? So, as you said、um, at the beginning,、uh, Prime Minister Suga Yoshihide, when he took office in,、uh, in September last year,、uh, even then,、uh, the year ahead was going to be difficult for him. Um, there was some speculation that he would、uh, call an early general election、uh, very soon into his administration, but he didn't, which then raised the premium on, on everything going right for him in, in, in the coming months.、Um, unfortunately, things haven't really panned out domestically as he perhaps would have hoped. And there are now four main、uh, challenges for him、um, as he moves uh, to, the, uh, to, to, to the two deadlines uh, in his uh, premiership in the short term, which is the LDB presidential election. Uh, and the next general election. So these four challenges are the first, obviously, is COVID,、uh, as it is for any, any leader anywhere at the moment. And、uh, Japan's vaccine rollout has, has been slow、uh, for, for reasons which I'm sure we'll talk about、um, in, in, in the coming questions. So that's been slow. The impact of the re- recent state of emergency that has been declared in key areas, key economic areas、uh, of Japan, including Tokyo and Osaka. Um, they will have an impact on, on the economy. So, so,、uh, so pr- the Prime Minister is dealing with,、uh, with the COVID crisis. On top of that,、uh, he has the Olympics uh, to, to think about.、Uh, the plans are at the moment, as of this podcast, that the Olympics are going to go ahead,、uh, possibly with, uh, with、um, spectators, although the spectators wouldn't be allowed to do any cheering, which is going to be quite a lot of、uh, exercise and self restraint. I think for if any spectators, if they're allowed in, or perhaps without spectators.、Uh, so that is also a logistical、um, headache for the, for the Prime Minister. And then, as I said, the last two challenges、uh, his term as LDP leader、uh, and by tradition as Prime Minister、uh, runs out、uh, in September、uh, this year. He's continuing the last、uh, year of, the, of、uh, Abe Shinzo's LDP leadership term. He's going to have to fight that. And of course, on top of that, as I've already said, he's got the next general election、uh, to fight,、uh, and that has to be held by、uh, the end of October. So, a really packed domestic schedule, both politically, logistically,、uh, economically,、uh, 
uh, pretty much in every single respect for the Prime Minister. So let's unpack some of those challenges and how the Prime Minister is responding to them. Um, You mentioned the slow rollout of the vaccine uh, in Japan. Why is the rollout so slow? There are a number of reasons for that. And I think at the moment, Japan's got one of the lowest um, vaccinated population percentages uh, in, in, in the rich world. But as I said, there are a number of reasons for this. Uh, partly logistical, uh, for example, a shortage of manpower personnel to, to deliver the vaccines. Uh, but also, I think, a sort of deeper structural problem for Japan, which I'm sure policymakers will be looking at very closely going forward, uh, is Japan's lack of um, uh, domestic vaccine pr- producing capacity. Uh, so it is depending on vaccines, uh, largely from Pfizer at the moment, uh, coming into the country. And of course, that makes it vulnerable uh, to uh, to supply uh, issues, uh, various logistical issues outside Japan. So th- those are a couple of the reasons. But clearly for um, the vaccine rollout, the success of this is also important, uh, is also related to the success of the Olympics. Uh, logistically, a lot of um, athletes coming in into Japan from outside. The government will be keen to get as many of the vulnerable people in Japan vaccinated, uh, uh, vaccinated ahead of this. And let's talk about some of the other structural uh, challenges that um, uh, the administration is uh, seeking to address. We know that um, there's a heavy economic agenda on the table as well, including a digitalization policy, uh, setting goals for curbing carbon emissions and others. What progress has been made on these issues and what are some of the remaining challenges here? The Sugar administration started off um, with its signature um, trumpet call, if you like, uh, as uh, about to be all about economics, uh, all about uh, raising productivity all about uh, cutting the barriers to growth that 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 uh, you know that are in in Japan and uh the um the 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 platform of the administration's uh, economic push made absolute sense uh, given given the issues that, that are in Japan and it made a good start uh notwithstanding the covid environment um the uh, the hanko wars those of those of you that follow Japan will will be aware of the hanko wars so in Japan uh, a lot of the procedures uh, in, the, in, in bureaucracy and business, they, they need a physical stamp. Now, these things are incredibly beautifully made, They're great works of art, each stamp, uh, but they do take a lot of time and each stamp has to be uh, stamped physically. So you can imagine uh, what that does to productivity in terms of throughput of decisions, for example. Um, the uh, administrat- administrative reform minister, Kono Taro, he, 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 he started off with a big splash uh, with his Hanko Wars to try and get rid of these uh, these stamps to streamline procedures, um, and at the beginning of the year there was talk of him getting rid of about fifteen thousand uh, procedures that needed a Hanko stamp. So these Hankos just give you example the idea of just how prevalent these uh, these 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 stamps are. So and this 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 had a lot of political theatre about it, but the um, it, actually physically very important to to make sure that. Uh, that, that, as I said, procedures are, are streamlined, that uh, things move through the system uh, more quickly. That was um, a sort of piece of theatre, uh, but also important. But the, the really key bit of the Suga um, uh, economic push, in, in our view, was his, it was his uh, wish to set up a digital uh, agency to coordinate, a sort of control tower for Japan's digital policy. And as, as we know, it, it, going forward, all the economics is all going to be about digitalization and strategy and policy around that. 
The issue, this, this digital agency will be set up towards the end of the year, so it's, it's all sort of moving forward. I think the issue about this agency, however, is will it be largely operational? Uh, so will it be uh, tasked with um, digitalizing Japan's uh, legacy systems? Uh, Japan is one of the few countries where you can still use a fax machine, for example. So uh, to give you an idea of just how urgently this digitalization is, is needed. Or, or will it, as, as we hope it will be, become more of a, um, a, an organization thinking about Japan's digitalization more strategically? Actually, that's a very important point that Robert made in terms of how to operationalize the digital agency versus how to think more strategically. And in that sense, I think Japan's digital policy and innovation policy in general should probably need a more long-term strategy to invest in human talent, um, deal with these um, demand, digital demands in the government, but also to create an environment, especially more of a financing or funding mechanism to allow the researchers to focus and take risks on basic R&D in critical and emerging technologies um, to boost Japan's future economic competitiveness. In addition to, um, of course, the, the the very important digital agenda that you just mentioned, um, COVID has, of course, also exacerbated a debt problem in Japan. And um, public debt, as far as I understand, stands at more than twice the size of Japan's economy. So what fiscal and structural reforms is Prime Minister Suga pursuing to address this? Well, the Japan's debt burden is even what well, was even before the COVID crisis enormous, the, 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 the largest uh, in the uh, in in the in the rich world, uh, the debt as all the COVID um, a mixture between uh, fiscal uh, the need for fiscal support for the economy uh, against COVID, um, coupled with the the recession uh, that, that that Japan's had will leave um, Japan with a debt to GDP uh, a gross debt to, debt, debt to GDP burden of about two hundred and fifty to two hundred and sixty percent. Uh, that is enormous, uh, bigger than it, far bigger than Italy, which is also um, has very weak uh, public finances. Um, it's not, it's not going to. There's, there's no risk of a crisis at the moment because interest rates are so incredibly low, um, and the markets have a, a trust, I think, in the Japanese government that they, if they need to, they can take measures to uh, to make uh, to to improve the public finances by, for example, raising taxes and so on. So it is stable, but of course. With a debt stock that large, it does um, just just sustaining it and, and thinking about it does drain bandwidth from uh, from any government. So that's one uh, legacy. Um, in terms of the economic uh, uh, the economic prospects, um, Japan's had a pretty rough ride uh, last year, and as as as, as I noted earlier, um, with uh, the the emergency. Um, the, the state of emergency that's been declared uh, in key areas that will hit growth, uh, particularly in the second term. Um, so, in terms of the growth prospects going forward, the Biden the Biden fiscal stimulus, which is absolutely enormous, I mean, absolutely huge, that will um, wash out of the U.S. Uh, as well and benefit exporters such as Japan, China, uh, Germany, and others. So that will also help to boost Japan's short-term growth prospects uh, towards the end of this year and into next year. And of course, China. Uh, Japan's absolutely key market is, is is growing pretty strongly, partly of course due to, due to stimulus there uh, as well. But once the um, the froth of the stimulus measures externally have has ebbed, uh, Japan's growth trajectory will settle down into quite a into quite a sort of 
unexciting, uh, probably around 1%, 1.5% if it's lucky. So Japan won't be able to grow out of the, um, won't be able to rehabilitate its public finances by having rapid growth. So that will be one um, constraint. The other constraint, of course, over the short term is uh, is that COVID is draining the bandwidth from the government. So as governments everywhere are, Japanese government is also, it wants to do its structural reforms, it wants to do other reforms, but of course COVID is taking all the um, all the bandwidth from uh, from policy thinking at the moment, unfortunately. But has COVID also perhaps served as a catalyst for Japan's structural reforms or thinking on economic resilience? No, Yuka, this is something that that you look at quite closely as well. Yes, COVID-19 really made the already existing issues of economic resilience to Japan had to think about, especially in the context of U.S.-China technology competition and potential decoupling, um, and gave a more sense of urgency to this Japan's effort, including, um, I think, in the beginning of COVID-19 pandemic, um, when it spread it to U.S. and Europe, um, Japan launched this uh, supplemental budget, which included uh, supply chain diversification. And there were some announcements recently made about the allocations and potential new budgets for it. Um, But a lot of media reporting, for instance, um, describe Japan as thinking ahead. But what essentially happened was that Japan was already thinking about how to strategically um, shift production or bring back some production back to Japan or shift some production out from China to ASEAN countries to deal with um, these strategic, more strategic challenges. So that's one one example. I think another um, example for for Japan's kind of the impact of COVID-19 on Japan's thinking on economic resiliency and challenges is that COVID-19 revealed that Japan probably lacked um, pandemic response in Japan's thinking on economic resilience or economic security issues. After the pandemic, not because of pandemic, but Japan also established the economic security division within the National Security Secretariat, which is the administrative body of the National Security Council. Um, their primary response was to deal with the security challenges or strategic infrastructure investments or um, how to deal with China's civil fusion, for instance. But what they actually ended up um, using most of their time was how to deal with the economic challenges in COVID-19. But that also reveals um, that um, Japan is now starting to think about pandemic more from a national security point of view. And probably there might be some future discussions about how to strategically um, invest in, in vaccine, national vaccine development for future pandemic responses. So the structure of this uh, economic vision and national security secretariat came at the right time. It's just that there's probably much more work that the organization needs to think about um, as they re- continue to respond with the pandemic. So, Robert, considering all of these different initiatives that are currently taking place in short succession and the start of Prime Minister Suga's administration, how likely do you think he is to win the LDP leadership bid later this year, as well as the general election? Well, this is the big question that will be exercising uh, the prime minister at the moment. Um, I don't think he's going to have an early general election. That just, just doesn't seem to be his style. I think he's going to try and concentrate on the key things uh, that he needs to in, 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 domestically, certainly, which would be uh, the uh, COVID crisis, as I mentioned earlier, and also the uh, the Olympics. So I think those are going to be uh, the things he's going to focus on uh, at home. Um, 
his popularity was very, very high when he when he took office. In part, that was uh, um, so a bit of euphoria amongst voters after eight years of, of Abe. So he was a sort of wasn't a new face, but he was certainly new in that particular role. So he and and he's a sort of different type of politician as well. He's not one of the uh, political aristocracy that pepper uh, Japan's political scene. He comes from far more humble backgrounds, so he's got an interesting backstory, and that played well initially. However, there, there have been a few um, policy missteps and, of course, COVID fatigue uh, in Japan as well, and then the uncertainty over the Olympics. The Olympics are not necessarily uh, popular throughout Japan, holding them. Some people don't want the Olympics to happen. And this has all um, caused Suga to lose a bit of political altitude um, over the past uh, few months. So uh, I think he'll leave the general election, calling the general election, which which he, which is in his gift. Uh, he, he, I think he'll leave that as long as he can, um, which means towards... Um, September or or even potentially into October. But of course, this is also a risk for him because in Japan, generally, elections are held well before the end of a, a parliament's term. Uh, this would be uh, this would be different from that. So this would be right to, right at the end of the parliament's term. And of course, again, the 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 closer you get to the end uh, date of this parliament, the less room there is. Uh, for manoeuvre. Um, there's been some opinion polls out uh, recently uh, which, which have shown others, uh, other people in the LDP more popular than him. Uh, Kono Taro is, uh, is, what, is one of the most uh, popular, comes out top. Uh, even Abe Shinzo, the previous prime minister, is, is in the list of those that uh, some of the public want to see as prime minister again. So there's a bit of a debate in Japan over whether Abe is going to make another comeback. Uh, I suspect not, actually, because things have moved on, but uh, but never say never uh, in Japanese politics. Fascinating. Yuka, let's turn to um, Japan's foreign and security policy. What are Prime Minister Suga's priorities and how do they differ from uh, those of the Abe administration? Are we just seeing more of the same when it comes to, in particular, U.S.-Japan relations, or are there new things on the horizon? Prime Minister Suga came into office with a clear message that his intention is to continue what Prime Minister Abe has started to do, which is to promote the vision of free and open Indo-Pacific. So just for some of the listeners who have not been following the diplomatic strategy on Japan, the, the free and open Indo-Pacific, which you know often referred to as FOIP, has three stated goals. It's essentially Japan's diplomatic strategy, which was launched um, in 2016 by Prime Minister Abe. First, to maintain the rules-based order and transparency in governance. Second, to promote economic connectivity across the region. And three, to promote and maintain um, security. But there are also um, unstated three strategic goals that that I've observed um, behind this construct, which is very important um, to discuss about Prime Minister Suga's uh, diplomacy. One, to maintain the rules-based order um, at a time of U.S. leadership vacuum in the region, especially during the presidential transition last year. And second, really to include India to the table to discuss about regional economic and political and security order. And third, to keep the U.S. glued to the regional economic and uh, political regional construct. So in that sense, I I think we've heard a lot of experts and critiques about uh, Japan's point being vague, but it's vague intentionally, and there are some tangible results that I will refer to later. But if you look at these three unstated uh, strategic goals, 
despite the fact that Prime Minister Suga came into office focusing more on the economic agenda, we can see that he has maintained and achieved um, these three goals. That's fascinating. Yuka, could you also explain how the U.S. administration's Asia policy impacts FOIP? So far, I think I've seen two major observations about U.S.-Asia policy and its impact on Japan's thinking. One is that there's a lot of continuity from the Trump administration, which also reflects uh, this traditional bipartisan support on Asia policy um, and on how to deal with China. So one for Japan, the very big part was the China policy. Japan was initially concerned if it was going back to the second administration of the Obama administration, where the U.S. and and China, for instance, uh, agreed on forming a new model of great power relationship. But the Biden administration continued to maintain a tough stance on China. And also the technology competition part um, was also remained as one of the central front for competition with China. As a result, many of the initiatives advanced under the Trump administration in the the context of U.S.-Japan cooperation has continued. One of the major achievements in the economic connectivity was really the physical and digital infrastructure cooperation between U.S. and Japan. This has various aspects, including cooperation between the public and private financing institutions to, for instance, um, finance Palau's undersea cables um, with Australia, and but also to um, coordinate to create a more diversified and innovative telecom supply chains. And um, at the, the summit, we've seen that it was the first time for um, the announcement between the, the leader in the leaders level to jointly promote um, an open RAN 5G, which is a more diversified a disaggregated network um, as a kind of alternative to the existing Huawei or Ericsson or Nokia's um, single kind of provided network. And also another big news was that the two sides also commit, committed in at the summit to, to fund 4.5 billion um, US dollars uh, for 5G and beyond technologies. So these are um, something that's a continuation of the work from the Trump administration, which has made, made some progress um, under the Biden administration as well. The second would be probably the differences between the Trump administration and, and the Biden administration, um, but is really the centrality of the, the quadrilateral security dialogue, the quad mechanism in U.S. thinking of the regional economic, political, and security architecture. Um, so we've seen that the quad is not just a security dialogue, but it has expanded to include topics like climate change, um, technology, standards settings and also on, on how to deal with the COVID-19 challenges and it also has a lot of discussions around how to create a more resilient supply chain and also just thinking about the size of the quad countries um, you can see that this uh, the role of the quad in regional order is going to be significant we have the first and the, the third and the fourth um, largest economies in the world um, so so I guess that will be a little bit um, so probably in terms of how it's relevant to FOIP, um, in terms of U.S.-Japan cooperation, probably the Quad will be the center um, of cooperation in the region. And there might be some opportunities for other interested parties in, in U- like for instance, U.K. or Europe to potentially engage with the Quad. So you mentioned the topics of economic resilience and um, the challenges that China poses to um, truly secure supply chains uh, for Japan. I- I'd like to touch on that a little bit more. Um, Japan is currently, as you said, um, pursuing a number of initiatives to, particularly in technology, to diversify its supply chains, to divest away from China. 
Um, I know that this is one of your primary areas of research, so you'd be best placed to tell us where do deep coupling efforts in Japan actually stand today practically? What have been the real results of this? That's a very difficult uh, question, actually, because the government and the companies are still in the middle of struggling. And I think it also will really depend on to what extent uh, the U.S. administration uh, now, because the Biden administration is more willing to work with allies and partners rather than the previous Trump administration's approach uh, to unilaterally kind of put sanctions on certain companies and countries. It's actually good, but also gives a lot of pressure for Japan as well as an U.S. ally on to what extent it could decouple, especially on critical technology areas like semiconductors, AI, or telecommunications. And we have already seen in the past, even just the past several weeks, that um, even when Japan has started to think about how to strengthen its economic security, including the recent strengthening of the foreign investment screening, there are, like any other countries, loopholes, and there are still, you know, some Japanese important technology companies, which is working with the U.S. Um, technology companies as well, have been receiving um, Chinese investments. That is just one example. Um, but I think what makes Japan's thinking on decoupling or diversifying supply chain is the Japanese government or the companies itself is not necessarily aware of how much they are entangled in the global supply chain and how it's very, very, very difficult to um, decouple with China. I'm, I'm sure Robert would like to um, add to uh, my comments as well. Absolutely spot on uh, point from uh, from Yuka. It, it, I mean, it's very difficult to decouple from China. I mean, I mean there will be selective decoupling, yes, in certain strategic industries, but Japan is a good example of just how difficult that is to pull off in practice. So the government... Um, has uh, is giving subsidies uh, to companies to to move some production out of China, uh, but it's interesting just how few companies have have taken that up, uh, because of course the fact is that uh, China is uh, is Japan's most important market and is vital for the health of Japanese uh, economy. So um, I think to all those that are sort of advocating full decoupling, um, Japan is a good example of just how difficult that is that is to do um, and how. Any policy uh, towards China also has to sort of to calibrate uh, that market reliance uh, into it. Absolutely, I think that we're seeing that in Europe as well, um, and not least in Taiwan. Uh, Yuka, uh, just uh, maybe speaking a little more about expanding a little more about what I mentioned by um, how the U.S. administration's approach on supply chain diversity gives a little bit of a pressure on Japan. I think I wanted to expand a little more on that. Because the United States is not necessarily integrated in the regional economic architecture, such as after the withdrawal from CTPPP in 2017, the United States is also not part of the recently concluded RCEP um, agreement, which was led by China. But Japan is in both, both agreements, and it is more in a position to um, kickstart the conversation and to really work with regional partners, including ASEAN. Um, to think about how to create a resilient supply chain. So the United States, in a way, has to rely on Japan on that front. Um, so in that sense, there's a pressure on Japan. And um, although that uh, Japan is seen as a country where the, the government and the industries are much closer, and of course, LDP's space is the uh, largest, one of the largest space is the business federation. But at the same time, as we have discussed, um, Japanese companies are still struggling to um, really shift 
their production line out from China. So that'll be a big, big challenge that Japan will face. I quickly tried to get uh, Taiwan into the conversation just now, and I'm going to return back to it because a very important meeting took place, of course, between Japan and the United States, a, a two plus two meeting of U.S. and Japanese foreign and defense ministers recently in which the U.S. and Japan publicly agreed to jointly oppose Chinese coercion in the region. This was, I think, by some analysts and observers, um, interpreted as a, a statement directed at a Taiwan scenario and uh, Japan's participation in support of the U.S. in such a scenario. Um, how should we interpret this uh, statement in, in, in practice, Yuka? So at this point, I think it's a little bit too early to discuss about what specifically that Japan and the United States could do in times of Taiwan contingency. At the same time, I would also highlight the importance of the recent, not just a two plus two, but um, there was a mention of underscoring the importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Straits um, in the joint statement made by the U.S. and Japan during the recent summit. This is very significant because the last time that the Taiwan Straits was mentioned was back in 1969 when there was a Nixon and and uh, President Nixon and, and Prime Minister Sato um, met, but that was very different context because it was before the Japan-China normalization. So the fact that uh, there was a mention about Taiwan after normalization is, is very significant. But at the same time, um, as you mentioned, the two plus two meetings and, and the, the phrasings and the word used um, in, in um, the, the joint statement actually did create some room uh, for Japan and the United States to start thinking and discuss about how to um, jointly respond and operate in times of contingency, um, which is also a big step, I think, for U.S. and Japan. So it's it's too early to assess whether they have started or, or not, but it actually does create room for discussion. Robert? Just to continue on what Yuka was saying, um, it, it's extraordinary. When um, Suga uh, took office uh, last year, he was everybody said, well, he, he won't be a foreign policy uh, prime minister. He'll focus on the domestic economy and, and the issues we talked about. But actually, um, just shows how events can, can change things. Uh, the prime minister, I, I would argue, has had his greatest successes, uh, some of his greatest successes so far in his brief term in, in foreign policy. Um, you look at the momentum that the Quad uh, has gained uh, since he's been uh, in office, um, the meetings that he's had there. Um, if you look at the Biden administration, uh, the Biden uh, summit, uh, and as Yuka has been talking about the, the Taiwan statement, I mean, these are all pretty big things. Um, so there's really, um, A, successes that, that Suga's had on foreign policy, I think, uh, are, are already noteworthy in a, in a very brief period. But also, I think Suga is building on um, the legacy, Abe Shinzo's uh, foreign policy legacy and sort of taking it taking it forward. Some of the things that um, Suga has been doing, um, I don't think would have been possible had had not Abe had in his eight years put lots of interesting um, things, changes in place institutionally and in terms of how Japan conceptualizes foreign policy too. We've talked about these successes, but of course, um, in contradiction to the successes, there's uh, the Japan relationship with South Korea, which hasn't developed very positively in uh, recent months. So in that sense, where does mending bilateral relations with the Moon Jae-in administration stand in Suga's list of foreign policy priorities? And how important is that to Japan's overall security agenda at the moment? 
Yes, I think there are rooms for trilateral cooperation. First is that um, North Korea, nuclear and missile threats has always been the major factor for bringing together um, South Korea and Japan on the table and to foster trilateral cooperation. We've seen continuous um, challenges in nuclear on the ballistic missile security front from North Korea. And also adding that the Biden administration has, is, has expressed interest in working together trilaterally on these uh, North Korean issues. And we've also recently seen um, the trilateral, the, the national security advisors from the three countries discuss about these challenges. So there are signs of potential room for trilateral cooperation. And I think um, th that's a very important top um, area to watch going ahead. So Yuka and Robert, we have run out of time for this episode, but before we sign off, I'd like to ask each of you for a 60 second burst of what you'll be watching for in your respective areas of research regarding Japan. Robert, you first. Clearly, we're going to be looking at defense and military developments uh, in Japan. Very important uh, and lots going on there, particularly around cyber technology, uh, as Yuka has been talking about, uh, and, gray, and the gray zone threat from China, how Japan responds to that. Specifically, I think there's a big question around how Japan builds resilience, uh, economic resilience, uh, political resilience, perhaps even, while being China's neighbor. So we talked about supply chains and so on. I think there's lots of uh, lots of thinking to be done around uh, around Japan and uh, economic resilience. Yuka, I think um, as I mentioned, I'm very interested in continuing to follow how the Quad is going to develop and how potential regional or external actors like the United Kingdom, which has launched uh, its Indo-Pacific tilt strategy, um, start to uh, engage with the Quad or the regional framework. Another area I, I would watch is that I've talked a lot about economic resilience and more on the defensive side of economic security today, um, but there are discussions about how to foster R&D in AI, quantum computing, bi biotechnology um, in Japan, both from a strategic perspective, but for Japan's future economic competitiveness. And there's much discussions about how to develop uh, a more kind of robust STEM, you know, education in Japan and how to, how to make sure that Japan can have a system to invest in um, its human talent. So I would also be very interested in, in following uh, the innovation, Japan's innovation policy um, and how these geopolitical environments will affect that as well. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to keeping up to date with both of your research uh, areas and, and on those specific topics in the future. I'll thank you both now for coming on the show and offering such insightful comments on this topic uh, and, and look forward to having you on the podcast again soon. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you, May. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the IISS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the IISS website. Thank you and see you next time.